I'm reading from John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I knew where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts, near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. saying that says it's better to be hated than I wonder if you agree I wonder how that uh, hits your ears as you contemplate is it better to be hated or ignored uh, I think it's true I'd rather be hated than ignored and I think my savior Jesus finds himself in the same sort of space uh, for the Lord Jesus the importance of his mission and pressing into it far surpasses whether people hate him or not. It's too important for him to be seen and for him to go about his business. And so, as he makes this claim that we investigate today as we continue in our I Am series, I Am the Light of the World, Jesus walks into a space to make this claim where there are death threats for him already. Uh, Jesus heads up into a public sphere in Jerusalem, makes this claim where people are already threatening his life. And his claim is, I am the light of the world. To help us understand the significance of the statement Jesus is making of this claim that I am the light of the world, I want to visit four C's with you this morning that go along with the claim. The four C's are the context of the claim, the contest over the claim, the consequences of the claim. And finally, the contents of the claim. Come with me into John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20, and let's examine our four C's. The context of this claim is quite electrifying. The context of the claim features a when, a who, and a where. The context of the claim is this happens very publicly and during one of the most significant feasts in the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles. 
We learn about that earlier in John chapter 7, and as I've put on the screen there for you from verse 14, we hear that halfway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple courts and began to teach. Now, there was some hesitance to go, or maybe not hesitance, but a delay to go, because there were death threats already. But Jesus nonetheless steps into this public space. Now, why is this context so significant? Well, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. We know it's the Feast of Tabernacles because it's introduced in John chapter 7. Now, I need to say a quick word that I don't want to scare you, but in the middle of this space, we have a very famous passage of Scripture, John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. It's a fantastic piece of Scripture. It's Jesus and the woman who is caught in adultery. What we probably need to, what we do need to understand at this point is that the weight of scholarship and I'd add my one gram to that, is that this particular part of Scripture was not part of John's original manuscript. And if you are to go back and read through, you'll see that it's quite a break in the narrative at this point. This is a flowing thing from John 7 through to John 8 of what happens when Jesus is at the the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's where we are. Now remember... This is a big deal for Jews because, of course, they remember not just that we all get to build a little tent and live in it for the week, but because we remember that God himself tabernacled with us. The Jewish people are remembering that God in his grace led them through the desert and he tabernacled, that is, tented, that is, dwelt, was like, like a grey nomad in a caravan almost amongst his people from heaven, dwelt among them, tabernacled and hung out. Imagine God on a camping trip with you. That's kind of the amazing thing that is the story of Israel traveling through the desert. And the beauty of it is they didn't rely on GPS or Google Maps. God led them through the desert by the light of a fire by night and a cloud during the day. God was tour guide and camping partner as he tabernacled with them. Hear then the significance of Jesus using the occasion where we celebrate God who introduced himself as I am, who dwelt among them and led by lights. At the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus comes forth and says, I am the life of the world. As John has introduced earlier in his gospel, this is God who tabernacles, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. This is God tabernacling with his people this is jesus saying the i am who revealed himself to moses is me i am your god who leads you i am your god dwelling among you now at this feast of tabernacles who does he say this to well he's saying this to uh, a wide selection of people but specifically to the pharisees now earlier in john chapter 7 verse 24 jesus had said to the pharisees you're just not good judges you don't see all that is going on you judge by mere appearances only you're kind of blind to what's going on but don't worry pharisees because the light of the world is here to reveal things to you that you may not have seen before i'm gonna help you with your judgment by showing This is the context. And where does this take place? Well, Jesus spoke these words whilst teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Now, this is cool to know. 
the space where the offerings were put in the temple is the court of women. Uh, this is where everyone could go. And one of the significant things that happened, well, there were two really big things for God at the Feast of Tabernacles. One was you would bring offerings, and the other is you would bring joy. That's it. That's what you do at the Feast of Tabernacles. You live in a booth, bring your offerings, and bring joy. And so part of this was in this area, there were 13 kind of trumpet-shaped containers where people would bring 13 different kinds of offerings. What a wonderful backdrop for the one who would come to offer himself when his hour arrived. But more so, in this space of the temple where everyone could come and bring their offering was a thing that different sources, some call it the celebration of light, some call it the illumination of the temple. Early, because this feast isn't just a one-night thing, this, is, this goes on for days. Early in the Feast of Tabernacles would be the illumination of the temple. This was an occasion where these great big torch towers stood in this court. And at the top of them were the old robes of priests. And sources say that these, these old robes would be set alight and they would blaze gloriously. And the young Levitical priests, they would also hold torches and they'd flag their torches. And the joy was amazing as everyone saw the temple illuminated. Why is this such a big deal? Well, perhaps because earlier in Ezekiel, we hear this story of God's glory departing the temple. So at the, festival, at the Feast of Tabernacles, where God is said to dwell amongst his people, we illuminate the temple with light and glorious lights that we might believe that God has returned to the temple and God is with us. And so this was the great festival that's, okay, that's happening, this celebration of lights or illumination of the temple. Jesus skipped that part. He didn't come till later in the week. I can't help but wonder, maybe it was a boycott. Maybe that was his initial thought of, you can't bring the glory of the Lord back to the temple. You might need the Lord to bring lights and glory back to the temple. The context of Jesus making his claim, I am the light of the world, is significant. Don't miss it. This is Jesus saying, I am the God who dwells. I am the light that leads. Inevitably, that leads to a contest. The Pharisees do not receive this well. And so our next C is contest. The Pharisees rightly, if this was a courtroom, this is the objection your honour moment. And I need you to know that the objection should be sustained. That is, the Pharisees say in verse 13, your evidence is not valid. Your evidence is not valid. And Jesus knows that there is truth to what they say because they're saying one can't testify for themselves. Let's guard ourselves right now. You hear Pharisee. If you've been hanging around the Bible for a little while, you go, bad guy. Be careful. There are good Pharisees too. One of them's name's Nicodemus. He's in John's gospel. Pharisees are experts in the law, and when a Pharisee says something about the law, it's worth us paying attention and listening and going, hmm, how does this work? What have I understood of this? What's going on? The Pharisees are right to object. They're referring back to Deuteronomy 17 and 19, where in both of those chapters, God says that you need two. The witness of one is not sufficient to put someone to death. 
the witness of two, that's to be believed. And so when they say, objection, Your Honour, the witness is all by himself, they're right to raise that objection. Objection sustained. In fact, Jesus himself in John chapter 5 says, hey, if I testify just by myself, it's not valid. It's not. However, Jesus, my translation, your objection is noted. Here's what you should understand. I'm not here alone. I do have two. You who I've told you before, you Pharisees who judge by mere appearances, you don't see who's standing next to me. You just see a guy from Nazareth. But my father is with me. There is a seconder. And so he says, in your own law, it is written. That is, in the law that you have, not, not some kind of derogatory in the law you made up. Now, in the law that you have and you hold to, you have that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Okay, let's work from that. And I am the one who testifies for myself, but my other witness, my second, is my father who sent me. Now, that's a neat trick. Imagine you're on trial, and they say, Shane Dirks, we accuse you of murdering Langdon Stewart. (laughs) That's brilliant. And I say, it wasn't me. And they say, do you have an alibi? I go, oh, yes, my imaginary mate, he was with me. And he's here to, he is here to say that I wasn't there. Oh, okay, Mr. Dirks, no problem. Run along. How do we know that this isn't Jesus just saying, oh, no, there are two of us here. You just can't see my imaginary friend. There's an amazing phenomenon that's been going on on both sides of this passage. Back in John chapter 7, they tried to seize him. No one could lay a hand on him. At the end of this little passage, John eight twenty, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus consistently in John's gospel refers to himself as the sent one. He consistently and humbly says, hey, I'm not just here speaking my own words. I'm not just here doing my own thing. I was sent by my father. And now when he says, it's not just me that testifies, it's my father as well. How do we know that it's not just an imaginary friend? Well, I would say the way that we can know is there seems to be someone supernaturally protecting Jesus. Now, the first time I read this, I just thought, now Jesus is the guy you want on your church touch football team, do you not? No one can lay a finger on this guy. The step is amazing. Go, Messiah, down the sideline. That's not what's going on. What we have here is the envoy from the Father, the divinely appointed and anointed Messiah, God's messenger, God's testifier, and God stands with him at every point. Stands with him by God the Holy Spirit being upon him, God the Father protecting him. And so on both sides of this testimony, no one could lay a hand on him because his Father was with him, protecting him. Not just an imaginary friend, but Jesus is not standing alone. He's standing with his Father. In the contest, we find out that Jesus does play by the rules. The evidence needs to be verified and testified to by two. And it is. 
in fact, by three, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In this instance, we see the Father and the Son. In Jesus' contest, he shows that when he says, I am God, he tells us something of the nature of God, that God, unlike all worldly imitations, is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and on display here are the Father and the Son. The testimony is valid, and that leads us to a consequence. In verse 12, Jesus has said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus speaks to a very real consequence. He says, when you receive me and walk with me, the one who says, I am the light, you're led in light and you see. By consequence, if you don't receive me, you remain in darkness, blind. Again, if we remember Israel's trip through the desert, they were able to find the promised land as they followed the light. Without the light, even with the light, those guys were problematic. Without the light, they were lost in a desert. Without the light of Jesus, we are lost in darkness. Now, I took a little pause as I was reading this. I went, whoa, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm a follower of Jesus. Hi, I'm Shane, and I'm a follower of Jesus. And... I love that I walk in light with you and have the light of life and never walk in darkness. But Jesus, sometimes I still mess up. Sometimes I stumble. Sometimes I fall. Sometimes I sin. Regularly I sin. Understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, when you walk with me, you will be in light. Now, even walking, like normal everyday walking in light, sometimes I trip. Sometimes I fall. Jesus is not saying, you will be perfect from here on in. But he'll say, you walk in the light rather than someone creeping carefully and maybe not stumbling, but still in the dark, unable to see. The point here is not the quality of your walk. The point here is where you walk. When you walk with Jesus, you walk in lights. When you don't walk with Jesus, you remain in what he calls darkness. And so the consequence is, see me and walk in lights. Walk with me and walk in lights. Don't and you won't. And so having examined the context, the contest and the consequence, we're probably somewhere along the way of developing our contents of what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world, but let's push a little further into it. What does Jesus mean when he says, I am the light of the world? Well, surely what he's meaning is to say, I reveal what is otherwise not seen. I am, when he says I am, he's making a divine declaration and he's saying, I am the one who can show you God. In fact, in verse 18, this is exactly what he says. Once again, twice in this passage are the I am statements. In the original language, ego a me. This is the construction. It echoes how Yahweh introduced himself to Moses as I am. Now we have, I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world and I am the one who testifies because I am the one who can show you God. Now the cool thing about John's gospel is he gives us some helps to read well. 
I shared with you last week when we examined I am the bread of life that in the back end of John's gospel, he said, hey, all these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Thank you, John. Now we know why you wrote. At the very start of John's gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, is what you might call like the lobby or the, the table of contents of John's gospel. So you, know, you walk into like a skyscraper, you walk into the lobby and you go to the lift and you're about to work out which floor and there's a felt board on the side and it will say level one you get this level two i don't know lawyers level three j and j advertising level four you get the point john chapter one verses one to 18 works like the felt board it says here are the things that you are going to see in my gospel it works like a table of contents. And Jesus here said, I'm the light of the world. I reveal God. I can show you God. And it's exactly what John summarized and told us should happen in John chapter 1, verse 18, where he declares, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who himself God is God. Let me read that again to get it right. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus' declaration is, I am the light of the world and I am the God who can introduce you to God. I am the one who has come to tabernacle to dwell among you people and say, Hi, I'm God come walk with me and you'll never walk in darkness. That's Jesus' declaration at this Feast of Tabernacles with this claim, I am the light of the world. In Jesus, we meet God. We receive the light of life. Outside of Jesus, we remain in darkness. Jesus' claim actually equips us to answer some of the questions that do arise from time to time today and throughout history. What will we say of the Jewish people? Do Jews need Jesus too? Aren't they worshipping the same God? Aren't they following the same God? Jesus says, indeed they do need me. But they have the word of God. They have some of the word of God. What the Jews wonderfully from God have received by his grace is a wonderful silhouette. The shape of God, consider like a, like a shadow. And Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world and turns shadow into glorious 3D high definition picture of God. And to the glory of God, many, many Jews received their Messiah, said, yes, there's my God. Received him like Nicodemus, like Simeon, like Anna. Received their God like many throughout, throughout the nations and are saved and part of God's wonderful family. We must continue to pray for those who, when the lights were turned on, took a step back from the God who revealed himself. Yes, the Jewish people need Jesus. The Jewish people, like all of us, even God's first chosen people, must receive their Messiah because outside of him, there is only darkness. Jesus' claim, I am the light of the world, equips us to speak to the pluralists in our world. 
Those who will say, hey, 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 many paths, one heaven. Don't all religions teach the same thing? They say, you know, like if, if you get four, four guys with blindfold on to go up and feel an elephant, what do you feel? One will say, this is round, it's a big snake. I've got a little snake back here. I've got just some wrinkly, I, I don't know what I've got. Same elephant. Yes, and that is the case when you are grasping in the darkness. Jesus says to the pluralists, to those who would contend all religions lead you to the same spot. No, no, no. I am the light of the world. Outside of me, you remain in darkness. And only by my light can God be introduced and can light be had. Praise be to God if you know Jesus that he introduced himself to you. I praise God that he introduced himself to me and I'm reminded of the importance of contending for Jesus as the light of the world. Even when I'm talking to those good folks, great people and clever people, surely if you just live the Christian life, the Christian values, if you know what's right and do what's right, God will be pleased and everything will go okay. Isn't it basically just about living a good life, doing the right things? In John's time, there were some people called Gnostics who believed that there was a light of God to be discovered and you could discover it by knowing the right stuff, thinking the right thoughts and acting on the right thoughts. But Jesus says hey, you can think many good thoughts. You can think great thoughts. You can. You can do good things. You can do great things. So many of our friends and so many of us do. But when you walk with me, you walk in light. When you don't walk with me, you walk in darkness. Isn't it interesting? There are people like me following Jesus who have been brought into light, been introduced to God and still tripping and stumbling, but walking in light. And how strange is this? How humbling is this? That there are people who walk so beautifully, wonderfully, do wonderful things, but they do it in the dark because they haven't met Jesus. And he says, therefore, they haven't met God. I do believe Jesus thought it was better to be hated, hated then ignored because this claim is significant he's saying wherever you find yourself whoever you are whatever you do you do it in darkness if you don't do it with me i am the light of the world in jesus we meet god we receive the revelation of god we receive the life of god eternity is secured in jesus we receive lights Outside of Jesus, we remain in darkness. Let our hearts prayer as I lead us now be, thank you, Jesus, for rescuing me from darkness. Lord God, in your mercy, reveal your light to all people, for we all need Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that in him is light and is life. And Father God, there is no boast we can make because we were just people in darkness rescued by his wonderful light. And we thank you, we humbly, humbly thank you that his light shone upon us and according to your mercy,
you introduced yourself to us that we might be saved. Gracious Heavenly Father, without a shred of arrogance, and if it is among us, may your Spirit convict us of that sin and banish it from us. We pray for our world, for all people of all nations, all religions, all creeds, and for how much they need Jesus. For outside of him is darkness, but in him is glorious lights. We thank you that John writes in chapter 1, verse 12, to all who believed in him, he gave the authority to be called the children of God. And so, Heavenly Father, according to your mercy, would you call many, many more to know the light and see the light of Jesus and believe on him, be saved, and be called your children. In his name we pray. Amen.